Philippians chapter 1 and verses 1 through 7. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Well, now, last Lord's Day, we introduced this gracious letter by looking at the historic record of the church's founding in Philippi. That was in Acts chapter 16. You'll remember, perhaps, if you were here or if you're familiar with the history there in the book of Acts, that the Holy Spirit was clearly directing the steps of Paul, both the stops as well as the starts along his journey. And it would be the notable and beautiful city of Philippi that would be God's choice as the first place in all of Europe to hear the gospel. We were introduced to one special lady by the name of Lydia. The biblical record tells us that God, quote, opened her heart to believe the word of the apostles, which was, of course, the saving gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Her home became the meeting place for the teaching ministry of Paul. And I don't know, perhaps they named it the first church of Philippi, as some churches are wont to do. But now it is years later, writing from prison, and persecuted for the faith, the apostle wants to encourage their hearts and hopes to know how they are doing. With all that, these four brief chapters contain his primary concern, we have suggested, is that he has a concern for whether or not, in the midst of their hardships, they have the joy of the Lord. And, how, and do they have and are they experiencing the peace of God ruling in their hearts and minds each new day that will keep them until the day of Jesus Christ, till Christ comes to take them home to glory. He's like a father writing from afar, very concerned for how his spiritual children are doing. In verses 1 and 2, last Lord's Day, we saw at least three things that ought to instruct our own hearts so that we too might obtain this same joy and peace in the journey. Let me review them very briefly. Number one, 
Paul and Timothy identify themselves as bond servants of Christ Jesus. They are modeling for us the kingdom principle that joy is to be found in serving Jesus. And that the peace comes from submitting to the lordship of Jesus Christ in doing his will. Joy and peace are the rewards of humble and sincere ministry to others for Jesus' sake as bondservants. Number two, in the second part of verse one, the apostle, remember, addressed the whole body of Christ. He would leave no one out. He has said several times now in the opening, all of you, all of the saints collectively under the orderly oversight of elders and deacons who are also mentioned there in that second verse. Joy and peace are to be found in the company of other saints. And Paul knows it. He knows that the Christian life is not a solitary thing, but that there is one body of Christ with many members and every member doing their part to serve one another. The third principle in verse 2, the apostle makes it abundantly clear that any true joy in this life and any abiding peace in the heart and mind will come to us by the gracious hand of our Heavenly Father and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from the one who alone can give such grace to his children. Now at this time, uh, as we've read together these uh, two verses again, and then read the following verses through to verse 7, this will be our focus in these next moments together. But let's pray again and ask the Lord's help to open up his word and plant it like living seed into our souls, that it might bring forth a harvest of joy and peace in his people and righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that every grace we need comes from your gracious hand. We want to learn more of what we need to know from your word if we are to experience that heaven-sent joy, then that spirit-wrought peace, so that the world around us will know that you are the source of our life, the Savior, to all those who call upon your name. We ask this in that precious name of Christ Jesus. Amen. After a long time since he was in Philippi, the apostle says to his brothers and sisters in Christ, verse 3, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. When I was considering that lovely thought, I have to confess that an old but very popular song started playing in my head. Uh, It was not a very spiritual thought, I suppose, not a very spiritual memory. It was a pop song, actually, uh, written back in 1941. It's the song that has endured the ages, the lyrics by Johnny Mercer, and it was simply entitled, I Remember You. The song was first introduced in one of those old war movies, The Fleet's Inn, with Dorothy L'Amour. William Holden. My apologies to the teenagers here this morning who have no idea who I'm talking about. 
To give you some sense of its longevity, having been sung by many an artist, it was also the tune featured as background music in the film Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. How's that for spanning a couple of generations? Here's the lyrics. No, don't worry. I'm not going to sing them. I remember you. You're the one who made my dreams come true. I remember you. You're the one who said, I love you too. And then the words say this. When my life is through and the angels ask me to recall the thrill of it all, then I will tell them, I remember you. Then I will tell them, I remember, tell them, I remember, tell them, I remember you. And it's something like this that Paul is saying, isn't it? Paul's letter is, frankly, a love letter. I think here, more than in some of his other epistles, the apostle actually reveals some deep emotions of the heart for this church in Philippi. How strong a sentiment is it, for example, in verse 8? It's as though he puts his hand on the Bible and says, For God is my witness. How I long for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Again, in this epistle more than any other, we, uh, we see the very vulnerable side, the emotional side of this apostle. Now take a closer look with me at what he expresses actually in verse 3. If the angels were to ask him about the thrill of it all, he would say, I will tell them, I remember you Philippians. We know that these are particularly good memories because he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And from verse 4, even when he prays, understand he's praying for them in difficult times. Even when he's praying for their needs, his memories have him offering his prayers, he says, with joy in my every prayer for you all. And so once again, beloved, there's a life lesson here for us, and I want you to see it. We all have our memories of people. And if I'm going to be honest with you, I have to say that in almost three decades of pastoral ministry, there are some people that I have memories of that I would like to forget. The uh, apostle's example to me, as I studied it this week, became very convicting. Because he says, I thank God for every remembrance of every single one of you. How's that for a goal? He thanks God for everyone. Rascals and all. What this tells me is that Paul learned the godly discipline of choosing to focus, apparently, to remember only the things he sees in a person's life for which God is to be thanked. 
I thank my God when I remember you. He must indeed be focusing then on the God who is to be thanked. The God who is responsible by his grace for the things that are thankworthy. Something at least in every person. The source of every good in every Christian brother and sister is the grace of God. I want to get that down again. That is so important to say. You know, we began our Christian life. We were very honest. We sang with particular gusto, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We had it once right at the beginning. Understand that the source of every good in every Christian brother and sister is the grace of God. And so he thanks God for those memories of the evidence of God's grace in some person's life. Did you know that this is the, the very nature of God's dealings with us? I'm so thankful that when God remembers things about me, that he deals with me in the same way Paul is dealing with everyone at Philippi. This is God's grace dealings. When God thinks about us by his grace, grace means this. He is remembering and with certain delight the last thing that we got right. Even if it was a small thing and very long ago. Think of this. All of our faults and the sins and weaknesses and the faults of our brothers and sisters, what does he do? He puts them under the precious blood of his dear son and he chooses to remember them no more. Where are my sins? In God's perspective, he's trampled them underfoot thrown them behind his back. This is all biblical language. They apparently landed in the deepest part of the sea to be remembered no more. That means that, means that when God looks at me and calls to remembrance, it's sort of like Old Testament, you know, and God remembered Noah. Well, he really hadn't forgotten about him, but what he chose to remember was God's uh, work through Noah to faithfully build the ark. He remembers Noah and he visits him again and the waters subside. And when he thinks of me and when he thinks of you, if you are one of his children through faith in Christ, your sins are gone. And he chooses to remember the last thing that you got right, no matter how small it was, no matter how long ago it may have been, he deals with us according to his grace. When we get to chapter 4 and verse 8, sometime in the next millennium, uh, we'll come to see that what Paul dwells on and what he thinks about in his relationships to every believer are governed by what he says there. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report, if there's any excellence, if anything worthy of praise, anything, dwell on these things. And apparently the apostle applies his own teaching to every one of his personal 
relationships in the body of Christ. And the beautiful nuances of the Greek language in which Paul pens this letter, the word that we translate here as remembrance, there in verse 3, is actually the same word the Greeks used for a grave, for a tomb, or a sepulcher. Now I want you to get this. Paul's secret to joy and peace in his Christian relationships is that he memorializes everyone. Now, that's not the same as wishing them dead. So hold on till the the thought becomes complete here. But you know, at certain times, often when I'm driving from home to my office here at the church, I pull into the beautiful Memorial Park just up the road. I visit the very place. In fact, I trace with my fingers the letters of my dad's name on that memorial stone. If we were using the Greek term and translated it into English, I am having my dad in remembrance at his tomb. And I remember him. What am I doing? I bring all that was ever the good and all that was ever the best about him to my present thoughts in that garden spot. And if you ever had the privilege, and some of you had, of knowing my father, you, like I, would be able to thank the Lord that what he was, that was truly memorable, he was by the grace of of God alone. That was his whole testimony. Oh, the grace of God. Around my dad, all I had to do was mention as a phrase, the grace of God, and tears would well up in his eyes. You see, I do not choose to remember his sins. He had his share. I don't dwell on his weaknesses. He had them. I just thank God for how his grace, God's grace, was so very evident in my dad's life. Just this week, I, I read a, a statement about how at one time someone asked the wife of Dr. Billy Graham, Ruth Bell Graham, what would be in her mind a fitting epitaph upon her own death? What would she, in other words, like engraved upon her tombstone? Well, now she is with the Lord, only recently having entered into that glory. But this was how she answered for herself. She said, you might as well put these words there. Quote, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. We've often said that in so many words, haven't we? Please be patient with me. God isn't finished yet. But when Paul thinks upon the Philippian believers... He does not recount their weaknesses, certainly not their sins, certainly not their failings. And by the way, as we move through the letter, he will be addressing certain problems they have. Every church has its problems. You know why? 
people tend to go there. But Paul memorializes them in life. Now, the world says, always speak well of the dead. But Paul tells us that a Christian has every reason to also speak well of the living. I propose then that we have today another signpost on the highway to joy and peace. Here it is. Start memorializing your fellow believers and do it before they're dead. Think and say the things about one another that you might say at their funeral, but say it while they're still alive. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Again, the word is cemetery, tomb, sepulcher. It's a memorial place. This may take some work, I know, with some people. But the rewards will be wonderful compensation. You'll find joy in the journey. And peace for the day. And the church of Jesus Christ will preserve its testimony before others in the world. Well, let's move on. In verse 5, we discover a major reason for Paul's joyous good memories of them. Note, he offers his prayers with joy, he says, in view of their participation in the gospel. And then he says, from the first day until now. From the first day when he went with his group of uh, evangelists and went down to the riverside where they met with a group of women on the Sabbath day and began to preach the gospel and God opened the heart of Lydia and she came to Christ by God's grace. She then opened her home and it became the place for the first church to meet in all of Europe. And Paul says, I remember that. But I remember that you have participated in this gospel from the first day, that first grand and glorious day, until now. Even now, he would say, while I'm here in prison for doing the very thing I did that day when I came to Philippi. Still, you are standing strong. That word participation in the New American Standard Version that I've just used is a good alternative to the term fellowship. I love that word, which you find in the King James Version. But uh, the original, of course, is that Greek word koinonia. What makes this founding pastor rejoice? The church... Its leaders and members are committed right up to the present moment to gospel ministry. They have not moved on to some other program or some other idea about the primary reason for the existence of a church. It is to proclaim the gospel. We do that in fellowship, in participation with one another. And we're to do it from the first day of our founding until the day of Jesus Christ. He knows that they have continued to be faithful witnesses in Philippi because the church has grown. 
Lydia at one point apparently had standing room only until any number of house churches were established throughout the metropolitan area and even into other districts beyond Philippi. The apostle also knows that they have been faithful to the work of evangelism. Listen to this, very practical, because they have financially supported his work as a missionary. Toward the close of the letter, he sends a receipt for the giving they gave with these words. Let me read it for you. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Philippi is really quite a famous place now in our thinking, isn't it? It's a short epistle. Paul didn't spend a long time there. A church was founded, and clearly they became a missionary church. One more reason among many, Paul would say, why they can have joy and peace in their journey of faith. This is a true church of Jesus Christ, one that understands its primary goal will always be the preaching and proclamation of the gospel and the support of others going forth to preach the gospel even around the world. Well, it gets even better. Can you think of any greater encouragement for this beleaguered congregation than to hear the words found in verse 6 from their beloved apostle? Here's what he writes. For I am confident of this very thing, that he, now in your English Bibles that should be capitalized really, is speaking of God, of Christ, the founder of the church, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it. A word that means to complete it all the way up to the day of Christ Jesus, which is to say, I will build my church as Jesus proclaimed. The gates of hell will not prevail against it, and he will build it until he comes to take her home as his bride. And Paul says, as far as you believers are concerned, I'm absolutely confident that the work God has begun in and through you is a work that is going to be perfected, completed at the return of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is almost never one to spend much time on wishful thinking. He doesn't entertain doubts about many things, if you read all of his letters. Neither is he a blind optimist. Yet he can say the most important things we need to hear with absolute confidence. He says, I am convinced. What Paul is being here is a biblical realist. He is confident. The Greek term patho is is often translated persuaded. I am absolutely beyond any shadow of doubt, fully convinced and persuaded that God's going to finish the work he began in you. Paul, as he does here, lets us know 
that any time he is absolutely persuaded of something, it's because the Lord himself has convinced him beyond any shadow of doubt. That is, Paul's persuasions, and there are many of them, it's a word study you could do. You can trace all the times and the particular issues of which this apostle was persuaded of things. His persuasions, if you will look at them in context, are always rooted in God's promises, which, of course, cannot fail. He's confident in all that God has said he would do, and all he's doing is passing that on to this beleaguered congregation. It's important to note that Paul doesn't get his confidence so much from the Philippian believers, what they may or may not do or whatever problems may distract them for a time. He gets his confidence again from what God has in his sovereign grace pledged to do on behalf of every one of his children. That includes us today in this hour of church history. I wonder, you see this in the text? It is God who begins the good work. And it is God who knows better to just start something and then leave it to the rest of us. He who began the work, that was salvation itself, will finish the work. Now there's cause for joy in the journey. And it ought to be the ground of your peace and mine for each day. God is at work both to will and to do his good pleasure. He will do that. He is not only the author of your faith, he is its protector. Remember when he said to Peter, I have prayed, Peter, that your faith fail not. So God, who is the author of our faith, who is the protector of our faith, will also be the perfecter of our faith, the author and finisher. How more secure can any child of God ever be? As Paul declared in Romans 8, once God has set his love upon the sinner, and singled him out for salvation, as he did for Lydia. There is no going back. Not only will all things work together for good, Paul says, nothing, nothing, nothing shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Some people warn the preacher that perhaps he shouldn't be so bold to describe these truths about our relationship being by grace alone because of God's mercies alone for fear that somehow too much security for the believer might make them lazy in terms of God's commands. I am convinced after many years of biblical study and biblical preaching and in my own walk with the Lord by experience, I can tell you, only the child of God who has every sense of true security, that child of God is the one whose heart will be spurned on to love and to obey such a Savior 
who has accomplished it all. Because he has a biblical foundation for this confidence. Look at what he says in verse 7. He knows that this feeling he has about them is a godly feeling. Because he calls it a right kind of emotion. It's very interesting language. Verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Where is Paul's confidence rooted? He believes with all of his heart that they are partakers of the same grace of God which won the heart of one Saul even while he was on the road to Damascus, stopped in his tracks from persecuting the body of Christ, addressed personally by the Lord Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we know that that Damascus road conversion and salvation of Paul by the direct intervention of the Savior himself becomes the foundation for the rest of Paul's life that he lives out literally half the time in prison and will end his life laying his head down upon the executioner's stone and most likely beheaded for the faith. And he says of these Philippians, all of this confidence I have is the same confidence I have that I know in whom I have believed. And here's that same word again, and that I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that day. And he just passes that blessing on to the Philippians when he says, work and will perfect it until Christ comes again. We do well to learn to simply trust and truly rest in the grace of God and to use our energies that come from that in full and complete obedience to the Lord who gave his life for us. Surely you understand that Paul's confidence does not rest upon the Philippians' past, their present, or even their future performance, but upon his first-hand knowledge that they, like he, really do possess the saving and keeping grace of God. You have participated in this same grace, he says. And so he remembers them as he writes. And he thanks God. I remember you. And when I pray for you, he says, I pray with joy. I remember you. We have a fellowship, a partnership that koinonia in the kingdom work, spreading the gospel. I remember you. God started the work in you and promises to finish the work until Jesus comes. I remember you. You are all partakers of the grace of God with me. I remember you. What joy we share in the journey. What peace God gives to us each new day.